0: From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine.
1: I've heard anywhere from like 40,000 varieties of wheat. I mean, just as tomatoes, right? There's so many varieties of tomatoes, and we didn't even know that. You didn't know that in the 90s, early 90s. It's the same with wheat.
0: Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. Now, you just heard from today's guest, Ellen King. Ellen is the co-owner and head baker at the Evanston, Illinois, bakery, Hune. We're talking with Ellen today about her first cookbook, Heritage Baking. Now, Heritage Baking, the book relies on artisanal flowers, which are becoming increasingly easier for home bakers to acquire. And it's filled with several dozen recipes for, yes, delicious breads, but also rolls, cookies, scones, coffee cake, and more. And for Ellen, it all starts with wheat. In today's episode, we're talking with Ellen about how using heritage grains can make baked goods more tolerable and enjoyable for those with gluten sensitivity, how her interest in history led her deeper into research on fresh local flowers. and at the end, we're going to play a little pun-filled bread game. Plus, we're talking with chef and author Deborah Reed about her recent piece for Eater.com on selling cookbooks in the age of Amazon. We've got a recipe for Ellen's heritage dark chocolate brownies, yum, and... And as always, we're chatting with Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Ellen King joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Ellen. How are you? Hi, Brian. Good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine.
1: Well, thanks for meeting me early.
0: Of course. Um, we're so glad to have you, and we're here to talk about your first cookbook, Heritage Baking. So I want to start really early and start um, with a link that you've made to something in your past that is connected to your baking and the way you bake today, um, which is a teacher you had in high school, Um, a history teacher, right? I think her name was Mrs. Lee. Yeah, You've connected your interest in history and the way you bake today to her. So maybe we could start there. And then I want to hear a little bit from that point on into how you got into baking. But tell us about her and what really sort of sparked that interest in history for you.
1: So I was a terrible student. Okay. Um, and when I say that, people are always like, oh, okay, yeah. And then when they ask, you know, what my grade point was when I graduated, I say it was a 1.67. Okay.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and everybody's literally like, that's like not even bad. That's horrible. <laughs> you shouldn't have graduated. Um, they let you graduate with that, right? That's, yes, they did. Impressive. I graduated yeah. with that one semester. I did get three D's N and an F. I okay. mean, and I still made it to the next grade. So yes. either they just wanted to get rid of me <laughs> or I just was lost in the numbers. So, sure. um, for me, high school was, you know, I just, I was kind of just like a sloppy mess in high school. But for some reason, I took a class with a teacher, I think it was my sophomore year. And it was with Mrs. Lee. And it was just like an average, it was an everyday class for, you know, you had to take it. I think it was like, I can't remember the name of it. It was just like world cultures or something. And this teacher was so amazing. She just brought history to life. And I totally engaged in this class. So while I was like floundering in every other class, for some reason, history just was live and real and connected. And so I finished that class. I think I got a B in it, and then I talked my way into taking AP history classes, okay. which re- they, nowadays they really you would be not allowed because you just like, <laughs> you have to like have a certain grade point. Um, and I talked my way into taking this AP European history class with Mrs. Lee my senior year, and it was a class that I really had no business being in. I mean, it was a very small class of I think there were eighteen kids, and they were like the top in the high school. Like when we were talking about where people were going to go graduate afterwards, they were like, Oh, debating between MIT and Stanford or sure. Harvard and whatever. Right. And literally I was like thinking community college. Right. <laughs> but this teacher, Mrs. Lee, she, um, she never saw me as anything other than a really bright student. I think it was the history and then also just really believing in me that I for the first time felt like, Oh, I'm, I'm maybe smart. You know, like I actually might be smart, even though nothing academically shows that. And so it was like connecting with a teacher that believed in me and then passionate about the subject matter that really launched me into going into college with okay. a clean slate. And I just, I didn't even question, I didn't even think about other majors. It was history. That's all I was going to like major in. I didn't think about a job <laughs> or anything, <laughs> sure. but um, you know, and I really owe it to Mrs. Lee in this book. You know, when I was doing it, it was really funny. I've reconnected with her and, okay. you know, she's come to visit the bakery and she's retired now. It's honestly so special because this person that knew me as like a 17 year old and now to see me as an adult and for me to see her as an adult, it's yeah. like, I I wouldn't, I don't know that I would be that <laughs> I wouldn't be a good teacher. <laughs> So,
0: And how fascinating that you've reconnected with her now. Did that happen after the book came out?
1: So I moved back to the Midwest, you know, like nine years ago. Okay. And I, I reached out to her shortly after I had moved back and opened the bakery. Sure. I reached out to her because it was like kind of I, I think I was finally settling down a little. okay, And just kind of like being back home, I was reminded of Mrs. Lee and like the significance that she had on me. Yeah. And um, yeah, I reconnected and she's definitely a part of my ongoing life now. We'll connect and get together. She still lives in the town that I went to high school and everything.
0: How awesome. That's yeah. really cool. I wanted to start with that because I think that interest in history that you realized at that point really is connected, I think, as people will learn through our conversation to so much of what you do in your baking today. But there's another point early in your life where you discover sort of amazing bread, I think you're studying abroad. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that experience, and then maybe we'll start to meld those two worlds of history and bread making sure. together.
1: So my junior year, I spent at the University of Oslo in Norway. Okay. And, you know, I think I'm not a good planner and still in my life. I really should probably do a little more research before I jump in, and I didn't speak Norwegian I didn't really know much about Norway, but I really wanted to go someplace that nobody from my college was going. Sure. And so I ended up at the University of Oslo. And the thing about Norway, even today, is super expensive. Yeah. Like as a student, you know, being a lifeguard, making my money in the summer, it didn't carry me far. And I lived in like, not in a dorm, I lived in an apartment with other students and we had a shared kitchen, so you had to buy all your own food. And I would go to the grocery store and the only thing literally that I could afford was bread and some butter and Jarlsberg cheese and a cucumber and a pepper and like make sandwiches. And I wanted to buy like the heartiest bread because I wanted the nuts and I wanted everything. And there there were these loaves wrapped in paper lined up on the shelves and they were so beautiful. All I couldn't read anything what was in them, (laughs) but I just saw like literally dozens of different types of bread. Um, So each day I would go and buy a loaf, you know, kind of like the more whole wheat, the more seeds, the better, but also cheap. And then I'd also buy beer, you know, because uh-huh. you right. can buy I'm 20 years old and I'm like, I can buy beer, too. Right. Yes. <laughs> and I bought beer. And it's funny because, you know, I'd, I'd go to the checkout line. Bread and beer, it'd be like, you know, 15 kroner or something. And one night at a party, I was sitting with all my Norwegian friends and they looked at my beer. They're like, because my beer, I bought the cheapest beer. Okay. Like whatever was the cheapest, that was what I bought. Sure. And my Norwegian friends look at me, they're like, why are you drinking the non-alcoholic beer? <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what? That's why it's cheap. They're like, yeah, beer is charged by the percent of alcohol. So like, Carlsberg, Carlsberg or whatever, elephant beer was like super expensive, right? But my non-alcoholic beer,
0: is right, cheap.
1: So, so anyhow, um, but. But bread was such a staple and eating super rustic rice and whole wheats and stuff that I'd never seen, you know, like in the like grocery, the Dominics in Chicago, just, you know, it was like plastic wrapped bread of no flavor. And so it was really kind of my first exposure to grains and all that can be done with them,
0: and let's condense the next part a little bit, then, because I want to yeah. spend some time talking about the book. But tell us how you go from, you know, your interest in history, your, you've tasted this really delicious bread. How do you end up opening a bakery? What sort of leads you to opening your bakery, which opens nine years ago? You said eight no, years ago, uh, six,
1: and six and a half, and a half. yeah, okay. years ago. Um, so I found myself after living in Seattle, moving to Chicago, okay. and I had a young son, and I was literally just at home with my son when my partner went to work and I missed eating really good bread. I really wanted the bread that I had eaten in Seattle and in Europe Uh and I just became obsessed with making bread. I couldn't get a job Childcare was too expensive, and so I just became tunnel vision, and my mom bought me tartine for Christmas one year, and that sparked it where I was like, I'm just going to read this book, and I'm going to master it, and that's all I'm going to do, and spent probably six months just reading the book, reading every book I could, and then I started my bread club, an underground bread club.
0: And tell us about the Underground Bread Club and and how you were delivering some of these loaves of bread.
1: Yeah. So I had because I wanted to get better, but I couldn't just like keep baking bread for my family. So I used my son. I pimped him out to like get customers at his preschool. Okay. And uh he's very he's a very convincing salesperson. Yeah. And so a lot of the parents at the school, at his um school that he was at became my bread customers. So once a week I'd send an email. And I'd say, here are the breads I'm making, have your order in by Wednesday, and we'll deliver it by Friday. So Asher and I would load up because I would bike around the town a lot if it wasn't snowing the burley, he'd get buried with bread and uh-huh. then we'd go and you know, it's the Midwest. So a lot of people still leave their doors unlocked too. Sure. And we'd show up at people's houses, we'd chart our path to school in the morning when I'd drop him and he'd run up to the door, walk in, grab the money, leave the bread, and come back to the bike. And then he'd do the same at the school. He'd like put bread into kids' backpacks and take out the <laughs> envelope. So that went on for That's I don't know, awesome. maybe like three years. Okay. Yeah.
0: So your mom bought you Tartine Bread, which is the cookbook by Chad Robertson of Tartine Bakery in San Francisco. And then you say you started to look at other cookbooks mm-hmm. and baking books, too. I think Tartine was probably pretty influential for you. Were there other books that were really key, other cookbooks or baking books that were really key for you in that time?
1: So, you know, I, I mean, honestly, I, I read like um, The Baker's Apprentice, Peter Reinhardt's books. Uh-huh. I read some of the French, it was like Breads of France. Okay. I can't remember who wrote that. So I read those just to try and understand all that I could. But honestly, it was Tartine's book yeah. that really clicked with me. Cause I just, I didn't want to use any instant yeast in anything. Right. And I wanted it to be like as pure and straightforward as possible. And right. I know some people read that and they're like, that is like a very long book, <laughs> but it just completely resonated. So. While I read a bunch of other cookbooks, that one was the one that really kind of was the launching pad for what I do.
0: Sure. And so now you're here with your first book, which is Heritage Baking. So let's talk about what Heritage Baking means to you. So I I know in your book you noted there's two sort of key elements that you consider for heritage baking, which is the use of heritage heirloom grains grown sustainably and the use of a natural sourdough style starter. So what sort of led you to want to bake in that way?
1: Well, I think because, um, you know, I went to culinary school for savory. I was not a baker. Okay. So, and in Seattle, the school I went to, it was always driven by the ingredients and the chefs or, and the farmers. So it was always ingredient focused. And so when I was in the Midwest, you're from Iowa, you're yes. surrounded by fields. Right. I thought, you know what? I'm going to be able to get access to amazing wheat because they're everywhere, right. farmers. And, um, and it didn't, it didn't dawn on me that I shouldn't know who my farmer was, you know, because in the culinary world, like, you know, all where your meat's coming from, your produce. Absolutely. But it was not common to know who's actually growing your grains. So I started literally being just kind of ignorant and naive and assumed that I just wasn't in the know of who was growing it. But really that the economy for wheat was not set up for you to know who's growing it. So that kind of, as soon as we opened the bakery, I was always on a mission to work direct with farmers because I just I, I didn't like um, white flour. I didn't like roller mill flour. Mm-hmm. I just felt like it was, a, it was sterile. There was like no soul to it. And so uh, I was driven to connect with farmers.
0: Now, when we talk about heritage wheat, can you explain how that's different for people who might not be as familiar with it than like ancient grains or then um, like maybe some people might think it's pretty similar to like an alternative flour, like an almond meal or something? What is a, a heritage grain?
1: Yeah, it, it is confusing because there, there's no like textbook definition. So when I met with, um, an agronomist and asked her about it, basically a heritage weed is anything that was, um, an older variety that had not been essentially hybrid for like removing components, right? So like, it was like, it could still be a natural hybrid between two varieties that were growing without a lot of inputs, but it's basically when you start adding synthetic inputs to grow the wheat and you're growing a variety that's been gluten, the amount of gluten has been increased. You have to add fertilizer, pesticides, insecticides, any sort of input. And it's also varieties that were grown before World War II because kind of that's like the mark of delineation where anything before world war 2 it was not being altered as significantly in a lab as opposed to just naturally selected by farmers. Right. People have been sl- selecting seeds, you know, for thousands of years for their traits, but it was when you started to, you know, really do it in a much more commercial setting and seed companies started taking over and farmers stopped saving their seeds. And you also have what's called like modern high, uh, modern heritage, which are old varieties that have been essentially put together. So like we work with some of those like Glen variety of wheat. Um, and those are from old varieties that are hybrid to grow in different areas, but they're not reliant on growing with insecticides, pesticides, herbicides.
0: Okay. And there's a lot of varieties of wheat, right? Like we yeah, are pretty I mean, accustomed to what we just buy in all-purpose flour perhaps, but...
1: Yeah, there's um I've heard anywhere from like 40,000 varieties of wheat. Okay. I mean, just as tomatoes, right? There's right. so many varieties of tomatoes and we didn't even know that. You sure. didn't know that in the 90s, right. early 90s. It's the same with wheat. And so the most important thing is that we've really lost that biodiversity because we've cultivated the specific varieties that the seed companies are selling mm-hmm. and... The most important thing with wheat is the diversity because one year, one variety might not work. Okay. And then, you know, you'll have another variety that actually does well that season. And we lose the strength of having a diverse growing population because um, I think right now people have given me different numbers, but basically like there's, probably less than a dozen varieties of wheat that are commercially grown, like wow. in the commodity world. That's like so significantly scary because if we have a failure, it'll be like a catastrophic failure. Yeah. And um, whereas if you have farmers growing different varieties in different regions, we might have a drought in the Midwest and the West might be have a vibrant crop. So the right. diversity is key.
0: Yeah. And not only is that key for sort of strength of the crop, but you also note that wheat, like wine or coffee or chocolate, has a terroir, has like a sense of place, and you can actually taste a lot of the differences in these types of wheat. Can you tell us a little bit, maybe for someone who hasn't worked with heritage grains or used other types of wheat or flour, how you can sort of see that come through in the product?
1: Yeah. So, you know, like turkey red that's grown in Illinois okay. will have s- slightly different features, like for turkey red that's grown in the, on the West Coast or red fife. And some of it is in the flavor. Sometimes it's even the protein content because it's depending on the growing condition. Okay. Um. But it also, the varieties when they're grown in specific regions, they start taking on over several years. They can be considered like a land race, essentially where they're adapting to their local environment. So like a the red fife that grows in Illinois, super successfully year after year. And if someone tries to take it and plant it in Eastern Washington, it might not adapt as well and grow as well. So it really does take on the characteristics there. Now, I I don't know, and like even with wine, like the terroir in terms of the flavor palette, I I don't have that creative. A, where sure. I could be like, I'm noticing a little pepper, right? And and <laughs> if I don't, someone
0: tells me it's there, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I can't say that
1: I have that. Right. I think it's more for me the uniqueness of that as it grows generations of that variety in the region. It's developing resistance and immunity and strength in that area, yep. and um and the same for something growing on the west coast. So.
0: We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Ellen King, author of Heritage Baking. Now, this week, I phoned up Deborah Reed, chef and author, to discuss a recent article she penned for Eater.com. In the piece, Deborah explores the challenges and perhaps benefits of selling cookbooks in the age of Amazon. She takes a wide-ranging look, speaking with numerous sources from authors to booksellers. Hi, Deborah. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Hi, Brian. How
0: are you? Great. We're we're so happy to talk to you about your um, recent article that you wrote for Eater, titled "Selling Cookbooks in the Age of Amazon." I loved this article, yeah. and I you make the sort of the argument that indie cookbook stores, um, like some of our beloved favorite cookbook stores, are still sort of finding a market despite some of the you know real challenges from behemoths like Amazon, who have slashed cookbook prices to ultra low levels. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned in the process? of putting this article together and talking to a lot of cookbook sellers?
2: Well, thank you for reading the article and having me on. And um, I will say, I learned a lot writing the article. I think one of the most important things that um, uh, just, it just kept coming back uh, to me while writing it is that is the in the inequality of sellers market in terms of Amazon and independent cookbook stores. And you know, most of most independent cookbook stores, this is their sole this may be their sole source of income. Sure. Uh whereas for Amazon, you know, that's sort of front facing the shopping experience is really um, you know, I may sound a little bit paranoid when I say this, but is really a front for gathering consumer data
0: right Uh, I thought that was so interesting and one thing that I I thought as I was reading your article is there tends to be these narratives around cookbooks that like for some reason cookbooks aren't going to do well like we had these all these fears when ebooks were sort of becoming a thing that like oh no is the future of cookbooks doomed because ebooks are here sort of a similar worry with Amazon and what that means for independent bookstores you also talked with a few authors um, about how they sort of contend um, and I think you use the phrase, the pros and cons of dealing with a corporation like Amazon.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, they, they are kind of managing a delicate balance, because as I explained in the sort of, you know, where authors make their money is on royalties. And so Amazon, to a cookbook writer, represents a kind of scale of sale that, you know, possibly no independent cookbook store would represent so it's a kind of-
3: After years of getting ripped off by big wireless providers, there's finally a better option. Mint Mobile is the affordable premium wireless service that you buy online, starting at just 15 bucks a month. By cutting out retail stores, Mint Mobile got rid of the crazy overhead costs so that you could score some sweet savings every month. To get your new wireless phone plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/save. That's mintmobile.com slash save
2: because they have to strike an interesting balance between looking after the needs of small independent cookbook stores and the customers who shop there and the customers who shop through amazon so, and just in terms going back to the royalty question. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, a an area where I'm not exactly expert, but a lot of cookbook writers make a royalty uh, if their if their contract is for net. They make a royalty off of whatever price, say Amazon pays the publisher for a book. Okay. So you know, when I said um, when I when when I include that information in the piece about often we there's thought in the industry that amazon's discount is like fifty to fifty five percent. It means that writers would get a lower rate from sales on Amazon, but I think it's made up by scale it's a very hard question to get to the bottom of because nobody really wants to talk about royalties i mean I think there's you know you're heading into territory that is difficult to talk about.
0: Sure. Um, And then I think you really sort of do a great job of highlighting why so many people love independent bookstores, independent bookstores in general, but also independent cookbook sellers, that really personal touch. And you talk with our friend Celia at Omnivore Books and some other booksellers about sort of the service they provide, um, which I think is just a lovely component of your piece too, and really sort of highlights for the consumer the difference in the shopping experience that you can have.
2: Yeah, and I think just in terms of the larger, like if we looked at the larger um, outside of even the shop experience, which is wonderful, you know, and the sort of, um, I think Andrea Guyon calls it, um, you know, a kind of, you know, they provide a concierge service. But yeah. beyond that, when I think of um, the presence of stores like Omnivore's Books or Kitchen Arts and Letters or the Book Larder, I think about the kind of knowledge that they share via social media channels with their customers and potential customers. You know, they 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 all have very active and vibrant presence in that area in a way that Amazon really doesn't. And I think it's bringing these books to life via a human experience of the book that is invaluable.
0: Yeah, I I love that. And uh, that's what we're all about on the show is bringing the books to life, too. So I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Deborah. Thank you
2: so much, Brian.
0: You can find a link to Deborah's piece on Eater.com, How to Sell Cookbooks in the Age of Amazon, in the show notes or on our website, saltandspine.com. Now let's head back to our conversation with Ellen King. You noted when you were opening your bakery in the Midwest, you sort of had the perception you're in the grain belt that that you would have access to great wheat um, and realized you you didn't really you started to work with farmers to grow some wheat right you worked with i think andy hazard originally Yeah. yeah tell us about that process and what that was like
1: so andy was the first farmer that i really connected with uh we met at a food convention in chicago and i literally saw her across the the way with a table of grains, like different corns and barley and oats. And it was just, I literally walked up to her and was just like, oh my gosh, you have like beautiful grains and <laughs> like pickup line. Yeah. And uh and and then I just kind of, you know, was like, we had seen Steve Jones, who's an amazing uh professor, a doctor from Washington State. He has he runs the bread lab. And we had seen him speak at this conference about. You know, diversity of wheat and really going in depth on this. And his talk was so amazing and mind blowing. And I think this was, I think almost five years ago. And so after that talk, I found Andy at that same convention and asked her, you know, would you ever want to grow some, some variety of wheat? Not honestly knowing what it took. Sure. And so we had um, sent emails to Dr. Jones asking him. For some guidance and he referred us to the USDA bulletins written in the early 1900s to like look for varieties in our region. Okay. Because it's so specific, right? He couldn't tell us exactly what would grow in our area. And so through that, we combed through journals and I came up with a list of like 30 varieties that I thought sounded great. Yeah. And then, um, we spent a month, she spent a month calling all of her like seed friends, like farmers that had seeds. And we couldn't get any of those seeds. Okay. They were not available in like you would need, at least need a kilo to be able to do any sort of planting. Okay. Which is nothing. A kilo is nothing. Yeah. And she found the marquee variety, which there's nothing amazing about the marquee. It's a blend. It's a hybrid between hard red Calcutta and red fife. And it was, um, Predominant in Canada and in the Midwest in the early 1900s is this is a variety that was growing very successfully. And so she planted that one kilo in uh, four years ago, actually five years ago now, and it yielded 30 pounds of seed. Okay. So all of, we hand harvested it too. We, okay. <laughs> like it was so small. It was three rows of 150 feet. There was no farming equipment that was small enough to harvest that. Sure. So us and a bunch of bakers and a few customers that were literally didn't know what they were in for on an August hot day in the Midwest. Right. We went out there. Um, to harvest this wheat. I thought it was going to be a party where we drink beer and like celebrate the harvest. (laughs) No, we were actually like in the fields covered with bugs using scissors to cut the wheat and separate out if we, she taught us how to look at for spelt or einkorn, just rogue seeds that got in there. Okay. And we hand selected some of it, harvested that. And then the second year, the 30 pounds, all of that was saved and planted and it yielded 300 pounds. And we got five pounds to bake with. I baked a horrible loaf of bread, terrible. (laughs) And I was worried that we were doing this project and it wasn't even going to result in anything good. And I had to wait for the next season where she planted the 250 or 295 pounds and it yielded 3000 pounds. So it was great yield. Then we got about 500 pounds to bake with. So this one, we nailed down the formula and now we have the like marquee. We have this year's crop this year's harvest that we're baking with but we still only get access to a little bit of it cuz she saves a lot of the seeds to replant sure so but that really gave us the insight of how important it is to bring back the diversity because if seeds are just being saved they're not actually regenerating and they're not it's like if we get cryogenically frozen and come back 100 years from now <laughs> like if someone doesn't teach us how to like adapt to the environment we're going to be like lost it's the same with seeds they need to be regenerated every few years for them to be able to actually Germinate and grow.
0: Yeah, I love so, that analogy.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: right. Um, so, how do you translate this to the home cook? Then, I think one thing people <laughs> might be weary of when they pick up your cookbook is how do I get access to as a home baker? How do I find these heritage grains, these heritage, this heritage wheat to use in my own kitchen? Is that becoming easier for people?
1: So, the book was honestly driven by my my commitment that if we're ever going to change how grains are grown in this country and have a significant impact on the environment, the end user, the consumer has to be the driver of it because sure. bakers won't switch over to using this if customers aren't demanding it. Yeah. And so it's kind of like that chicken and the egg, which I never understand that or the whatever <laughs> right. that the cart, whatever. I never understand yeah. that analogy anyhow, but basically this book m- might be slightly ahead of the of the availability, but in every state almost there's a stone mill that's popped up or is in existence that, that people can have access to. Okay. So it's not, it's, it's not like on the store shelves right now at Whole Foods or your um, whatever grocery store. But if consumers aren't starting to demand it, it won't be. So it's one of those things that I felt like. There's enough availability, especially, I mean, if you can order literally a vacuum from Amazon, right. you can get in touch with some of these local farms. And on our website, we have a regional grain guide just so people in each state can find where a local mill is. That's and great. most of these farmers, they'll sell it, or the mills or farmers, they'll still sell it direct to the consumer. And so I think it's really kind of fun for people to find out in their region, where is wheat being grown and connect with that farmer? Because I mean... How many people have actually gone to a wheat field and seen it? And right. you know, it's such a huge part of our country and even like our humanity. Right. Wheat is like a part of our DNA, really. So when the, you
0: think of amber waves of grain. Yeah, like, where are those? Where are those? <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. Right. And so I I feel like people can get access to that pretty easily. Um, and it'll become more available. I know farmers markets. There's grain farmers at those. Sure. Um, and then just even doing a Google search like stone mill grains in California, I mean, California has some great mills. Yeah. And you can
0: even mill at home. There's a, a guide yeah. in the book for how to take grains. And the, I think the, one of the reasons you include that is because people are sort of accustomed to flour being a thing that can sit on the shelf for years. Yeah. Which is not true with heritage wheat and heritage grains. Right. right? So
1: when a, when it's stone milled, it's really the stone milling. Okay. So because it's stone milled, essentially what that means is you take berries, like 10 pounds of berries from one field take that, pour it into the hopper at the top of the, of the stone mill. And then the mill grinds and it mills the berries complete and it comes out at the other end, whole wheat. That's okay. everything in it. It's the J it's the germ, the bran, the endosperm, all the oils yeah, and, um, B vitamins. And it's those oils that the whole wheat when it's stone milled will actually go rancid after, I don't know. We like to, I mean, at our bakery, we get flour that's like a day from milling, Sure, but, um, You can have it, you could store it in your freezer. You can have it for, I don't know, anywhere from six to seven months before it goes rancid, depending on if your house is super hot or not. And yeah, we're used to having flour be a dead product where a roller mill, essentially, it takes the, the berry and it has three separate shoots and it'll separate the bran germ and endosperm. And then the Miller will reconstitute what they consider whole wheat. They'll put back together the bran germ and endosperm in certain percentages and then add vitamins to it because it's essentially lost a lot of its nutrients. And that's why it's so different. And stone milling is so much more um, nutritious for you.
0: Yeah. You're getting all of it. You're
1: getting all of it. Yeah. yeah.
0: One thing I want to ask about that I know comes up a lot is gluten mm-hmm. and gluten sensitivities or intolerance, which for some people is very real. Um, and for other people's is maybe more of a lifestyle choice because of the way that gluten might make us feel physically. And you know, in the book that actually some physicians will send people to your bakery who have gluten sensitivities, because they can consume your bread. What is it about your bread and the way that you use Heritage grains that makes it more agreeable for people who may have sensitivities to gluten.
1: So we, there's two, two reasons why, and I'm not a doctor, so I don't want to make sure people (laughs) don't like the, like, Ellen King. I'm not a doctor, so like, talk to your doctor and, you know, find a doctor that's an integrative medical doctor because they're up on food. But, um, there's two components that make our, our, our breads different. One is the process. We use a starter, so everything gets a fermentation. And the starter, the yeast is actually breaking gluten down slowly over time. But secondly is the flour that we use. So we're sourcing stone milled flour. We're also sourcing flour that doesn't have any um, residue, Roundup, insecticides, herbicides, pesticides. So right. the thing I think that's most shocking, and I, I'll probably put like a target on my head, but, um, when I started learning about flour, I learned that, you know, there's no GMO wheat, right? There's GMO corn and soybeans, but really okay. what the GMO is, Is it's modified to be able to be sprayed with Roundup and not die. And wheat, there isn't that. And in some ways it might, it might be better because what farmers do two weeks before harvest is they spray the crop, commercial wheat with Roundup because it kills the plant and it dries it so they can harvest it quicker and it'll be drier. And so when they take that to the elevator and to the mill, it's not getting cleaned or sprayed. It's getting milled and you're getting access. You're ingesting that Roundup probably in higher concentrations and it's not tested for. In terms of what the levels are, okay. So I always wonder, like, is it essentially your body reacting to toxins that it's eating, or is it, you know, the gluten? The gluten's been the target, but I don't know that that's the case, right? So our flour that we use is free of that, and then our process—it's a little bit more complex, (laughs)
0: sure. And it
1: sounds conspiracy theory (laughs) a little bit, but that's the reality of farming in like the 21st century,
0: yeah. Now, the book also includes recipes that are not bread recipes. I think people might look at it and think it's purely a bread book. But, of course, you have recipes for how to use heritage grains in all sorts of dishes, like scones and brownies even, um, chocolate chip cookies. There's a coffee cake. Yeah, and, and we have
1: our brioche that does use a little bit of instant yeast. Right. So I'm surrounded by a lot of non-bakers and cooks in my life that actually are really not good. So they were like, I'm never going to make bread. Can we just have some sweets in there? So, you know, I'm sensitive that, you know, most people don't want to spend three days making bread. They want to have something sweet that they can do with their kids. So, yeah, those... But these are recipes that we use at the bakery. This is how we... Like our cookies, our brownies in particular, all of that.
0: So we always end with a little game. I thought we'd play a little game um, of bread-focused idioms that I'm going to pose to you as questions. We'll see how this goes. I think it'll be like a little rapid-fire round. So I'm going to put a spin on some common bread phrases and pose them to you as a question. So I've got four. Let's see. What do you think is, is actually the best thing since sliced bread?
1: The stone mill. The stone mill? I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to have that be a part of our history and now to have it revived and become a part of modern farming and milling and the stone mill for sure.
0: Okay. What Do you have a half-baked idea or concept that you always wish you would have gotten off the ground or that you always been tinkering with?
1: Half-baked. Uh, I mean, honestly, I have so many yeah. half-baked ideas, but... Um, I mean, I always think that I'm just going to abandon everything and buy a farm on an island in Maine. Okay. And like sometimes that's my happy place. Okay. <laughs> but that might be my half-baked because I, I don't, that should never come to fruition. Right. Because I think it would be really half-baked. bad for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, who would you love to break
1: bread with? Mm, that's a tough one. You know, this is, I I think one of the people would be like Harry Truman. Okay. I just find him just like an everyday man who inherited the presidency essentially and then was elected, but dealt with crazy, crazy stuff. But he came from very humble beginnings. I don't know. That's just who comes to mind. I'm going to leave here and be like, God, Harry Truman, that's who I said.
0: (laughs) I love it. But
1: that's like, yeah, that's who I think I would want. I mean, he's a Midwestern guy who Mm. ran like a sundry shop and then found himself president of the United States. Right. And he never was supposed to. And FDR didn't even like him. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, yeah.
0: That's great. Okay, last one. Um, we're now heading into 2019, thinking about our country, the world, whatever you want to think about. Who is the real breadwinner of this year?
1: That's a good one. Yeah, you know, I, I think the real breadwinner, it's a conversation I've been having with people, is the artisan that's not mm. doing something to make money you have to make money to live, but it's somebody that's, it's like a, a blacksmith. It's the person that's like a janitor at your school. It's like, and I call them an artisan because, you know, honestly, it's people that want to do an honest day work and get paid a living wage, but not become famous and well-known. It's like, forget Instagram, Facebook, our two-minute celebrity. It's the people that find their passion and do it really, really well And just want to like aspire to feed their family and be good people. I think that's the breadwinner to me. Yeah.
0: I couldn't think of a better answer. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alan. This was so much fun.
1: Oh, thank you. This was great.
0: And we're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco, where I'm chatting with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you?
3: Hello, Brian. I'm doing well.
0: Great. So we just sat down with Ellen King to talk about her book, Heritage Baking, and I'm hoping you have some things to share.
3: Well, actually, I have a very funny personal story oh, if excellent. you don't mind. Of course. <laughs> it has not much to do with the food. So uh, we actually Met Ellen many, many years ago, about 20 years ago. My wife and I also own the pet store that's next door to Omnivore called Noe Valley Pet Company. Right. And we were at a big pet supply convention in Chicago, and Ellen and her partner at the time were making these really cute fish treats for dogs okay. made out of tilapia. Okay. It was called Chirby's, and they were based in Seattle, but they were selling there. And we saw them like across the room, she and her partner, and we we're like, oh my God. Lesbians Because (laughs) lesbians were kind of rare back then And so we were really excited To see other lesbians So we ran over to them and introduced ourselves And ended up becoming friendly with them And they came out and visited us in San Francisco once And saw a store And we bought from them for years And then we sort of lost touch and then, flash forward to this year, I got contacted by the PR person who said, you know, this woman, Ellen King, wants to come and give a talk at your store. She's got a really renowned bakery in uh, Evanston, and also she happens to know you. And I was like, <laughs> wait, that name is really familiar. <laughs> right. So, I was so thrilled to have her book, and also to see her again, because we hit it off like we like no time had gone by of at course. all. I just adore her. And the integrity that she put into the tilapia yes. <laughs> treat of <laughs> she has put equally into this. She has a new partner who she's married to. And the two of them have really worked on this bakery, I think, and and uh, focused on heritage grains. You know, explaining that a lot of those heritage grains, even though they have gluten in them, they oftentimes are better for people who are gluten intolerant because right. they don't have all the additives and, and they're really, really well produced. They just don't have any of the icky stuff right on them and yeah so.
0: and i think it's so great too to see a baking book from a, a woman in the midwest
3: yeah like we, we have a lot of these I great know. baking
0: books from white men that are phenomenal books yes, like tartine and New what York have you or or, exactly but yeah. to see you know a female baking bread in the midwest and writing a great book about it yeah, it's sort of unique
3: yes and also the fact that she touts so many of the farmers from right. from the prairie lands uh and has really convinced a lot of them to start growing these better grains is really exciting. So because the Midwest is, you know, where a lot of that starts. Well,
0: it Mm -hmm. all comes back to food and tilapia dog treats. Yes,
3: exactly. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Thanks, Celia. Anytime. (laughs)
0: And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's episode and all episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll find a recipe for Alan King's Heritage Dark Chocolate Brownies, plus links to articles and cookbooks mentioned in today's show. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. A special thanks this week to Deborah Reed. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.